The sun is setting on another beautiful day in Puerto Varas. It's time to kick back with a local microbrew and some pizza. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang, and you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Buenas, John. Buenas, Sarah. So, actually, one of my hobbies on this trip has been paying close attention to how different languages are actually spoken, you know, in everyday usage, as opposed to how they are written. And in Chile, there's this really aggressive dropping of syllables toward the ends of words. So, buenas tardes becomes sort of a buen tarde, and then that will just even get further shortened to just sort of buen. Yeah, we definitely sound out of place with our full muchas gracias and Hola, buenos dias. Yeah, but I mean, at least the pronunciation here is somewhere in the same ballpark as the written language. And that was definitely not the case in Japan. And I'm just bringing this up now because it was one of my favorite quirks there, but I never mentioned it in the podcast. Anyway, so the standard thank you very much, which you have to say to basically everyone you interact with, starts with the sort of arigato that I think most Westerners are familiar with. But then you, you have to add the formal gozaimasu, to the end to be really polite. And that last word is spelled G-O-Z-A-I-M-A-S-U. So we started pronouncing it, you know, gazimasu. But in everyday usage, it sounds totally different. And actually, you'd often hear the full phrase come off a little bit something like, which is the whole arigato and gozaimasu all in just this one sort of delicious roller coaster of a phrase. And sometimes they would even add this extra TA at the end, so it'd be arigatozaimashita, which was just so amazing to hear. It took quite a while, but I ended up being decently good at it. And sometimes the just me saying that phrase would kind of trick some of the konbini clerks into thinking I spoke Japanese. Yeah, I never quite got the hang of it that you did, but oh well. And here in Chile, my French actually keeps kicking in, but there are enough French tourists that it doesn't seem to be too big of a deal. Yeah, definitely. But okay, anyway, should we actually start the podcast now? Yeah, I, I guess we should. So here we are in Puerto Varas. Which at this point isn't quite where we thought we'd be, but uh, we'll get to that. Right. Yeah, and after our last podcast, we spent a few more pretty low-key days in Santiago, including a Thanksgiving dinner at a restaurant whose name translates roughly as the cross-dressing Peruvian. You know, like you do. Yeah, that meal and others we've had here in Chile brings up an interesting contrast food-wise that we've found here versus most of the other places that we've lived and traveled. So in most places where we've been, we've kind of tended to gravitate either toward the really low-end stuff. You know, street food or reputable fast food or the ever-popular konbini in Japan. Yeah, exactly. So that or the more high-end stuff, splurge meals, you might say. Although, admittedly, I would say we've also become increasingly disenchanted with those. Yeah, I mean, historically, though, it's really been the middle that's left us wanting. You know, meals that maybe are like... 20 or $40 a person. It just seems like they're, particularly in the States, you know, the opportunity to feel ripped off is, is super high. And many times you're just paying for the atmosphere rather than excellent food or top-notch service. Yeah, it's odd because we've actually found the opposite to be true in Chile. You know, we haven't been all that impressed here with the cheaper end of things, that that we've tried so far anyway. 
The uh, standard cheap eats here is actually called a completo, which refers to a hot dog absolutely covered in toppings. Really, I would say too many. Yeah. yeah. I never thought I would complain about too much avocado, but here that was definitely the case. Yeah. And the empanadas here have been fine, I guess. Yeah. But we've really been impressed with our mid-range meals, like our Thanksgiving dinner, and another night of ceviche and pisco sours that we had at a restaurant called Chipe Libre. Yeah, and I actually have a little bit more to say to that on, uh, on food ways this week. So, in addition to the food, our stay in Santiago also gave us a chance to just generally get to know the city better. Yeah, we spent some really interesting afternoons exploring different areas of town. Yeah, so you might remember many, many sundowners ago when we were just turning out in Johannesburg, we talked about the urbanist Kevin Lynch's methodology uh, talking about city form. And he had this whole theory that people think of cities in terms of nodes, paths, landmarks, districts, and edges. It's been a helpful way of thinking about Santiago as well, because there's a lot going on just in terms of the lived experience of walking around the city. Take where we were staying in Santiago, the Centro District, for instance. So this part of town had some really impressive civic buildings and important historic architecture you know, right in the downtown, but there wasn't any one dominant style. Still, it felt sometimes quite cohesive because it was really bounded by these three rather difficult to cross edges, which were these major city streets. Yeah, and because the streetscape of Santiago is so flat, it's not really a city of landmarks either, at least not when you're at ground level. But then as soon as you climb up one of the hills, say Cerro Santo Lucia or Cerro San Cristobal, there are landmarks everywhere. And again, because it's so flat, you can really make out all the major buildings and plazas. Also, outside of Santiago Central, you do get these little pockets with very distinctive architectural characteristics. Take, for example, Barrio Londres-Paris, which, as the name implies, is some kind of mix of Paris and London. Yeah, or Barrio Bella Vista, which kind of spills onto the side of Cerro San Cristobal, and is where you can find Pablo Neruda's house, which is called La Chascona. It's this really funky kind of nightlife district that has a lot of eclectic architecture and one-story shops and stores and nice places to walk. Yeah, but then on top of those neighborhoods that we've just described, there's also this other layer of 19th century Beaux-Arts planning that you can really see throughout the center city. Yeah, so in this context, what exactly are you referring to by Beaux-Arts? Well, I'm really just using this term to refer to the style of planning that was popularized by Baron von Haussmann in Paris, but was also used by plenty of other planners in Europe and, and Latin America also in the 19th century. These planners were kind of looking around and seeing cities that seemed very cluttered and medieval and messy. And so through urban interventions, they were trying to clarify the overall spatial order of the city and to sort of bring in more parks and green space and air. Well, I imagine there were also different other kind of political and social aspects to that as well, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. And many historians even think that Haussmann's street widening in Paris was really mostly to make it easier for the French army to quash any new revolution or rebellion that might take place. Yeah, so not just some neutral move to bring in more pretty parks for people to enjoy. I, mean, I actually wonder if the wide, straight streets here made it easier for Pinochet to assume power in 1973. Yeah, I think that's a really valid hypothesis. I'm sure that it was much easier to get the soldiers and tanks down to the palace via those great big tree-lined avenues in Santiago. And those long axial vistas that lead from one monument to another probably made the air raids more feasible as well. 
Yikes. Well, maybe that's a topic worth more research down the line. Uh, anyway, Santiago still doesn't exactly feel totally European, though. It definitely has its own character, for sure. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think that what's true in Santiago's urban planning is also true in its architecture. There's definitely this effort to construct itself sort of consciously as European, but at the same time, there feels like there's a bit more room for experimentation and creativity in how those conventions of architecture were actually employed. Yeah, I could definitely see that at the Museo Bella Arte that we went to last Wednesday, which it felt like there were a lot of references and allusions to European architecture, but it was it was, it was reconfigured and, and sort of put together in, in a very innovative and, and distinctly Santiagoan way. Yeah, exactly. And then that, plus the fact that a lot of Santiago's major urban building took place a little bit later than the renovations happening in big European capital cities around the same time. So, for instance, I saw a lot more glass and iron in Santiago, which sort of aesthetically seemed to make the buildings feel lighter and more modern. So, all in all, it was definitely nice to spend some time just getting to know Santiago through the process of exploring slowly and not trying to rush around collecting museums or sites. Um, it, it felt like the city was, was slowly unfolding to us, and I look forward to going back when we fly out in just a little less than a month. Definitely. I mean, I already have a list of the last neighborhoods I want to see before we go. Awesome. So, last Thursday, uh, we took a flight from Santiago for about an hour and a half flight down to Puerto Varas. And this is in a region of Chile called Los Lagos, because it has a lot of lakes. It's also sort of right above northern Patagonia, or kind of marks the boundaries, the northern boundary of Patagonia. And with all the mountains and lakes and everything, there's really an outdoorsy alpine vibe. Yeah, that vibe is also in large part due to the strong German influence in this region. As I mentioned in some of my Instagram posts this week, back in the 1850s, the Chilean government needed help controlling all of the native Mapuche people in the area, so they recruited a bunch of Germans. Obviously. Yeah, to come and settle this area. And looking at the scenery now, it definitely has a European feel, with little churches and farmhouses on rolling green lakeside pastures. Yeah, if it weren't for the volcanoes everywhere, you could totally convince me we were in the foothills of the Alps. We got to see a bit of the countryside when we rented a car for the afternoon and drove around Lake Yanquihe. And that actually brings us to our regular segment, I Did It for the Architectural History. What have we got this week, Sarah? Well, there's this small town called Frutillar, which is about 20 minutes up the lake from Puerto Varas. And there they have an open-air museum of German houses like those built by the settlers back in the early 1900s. It would have been kind of expensive to take a cab up there, and the bus system here seems difficult to navigate for an outsider, and I think I'm also just kind of feeling over public transportation <laughs> a little bit after Japan. Uh, so instead, we decided to rent a car for the day and drive out to the museum and then take a tour around the full lake. However, despite how touristified Puerto Varas is, there definitely isn't a Hertz downtown that you can just walk into and pick up a car on a whim. So after finding out that some of the more reputable looking local spots were out of cars for the day, we found a sign advertising car rental that led us to a guy sitting at a desk inside a baking shop. So at long story short, he, he did have a car to rent us. It may well have been his own car. We're, we're not really sure. You know, usually renting a car is such an exercise in formality. You know, you have to go around and expect for damage and sign over huge insurance fees and everything. 
Here it was much more of a handshake deal, and, and there we found ourselves with a real beat-up Toyota Corolla ripoff from the mid-90s. Yeah, midway through our drive, the sun visor in front of me spontaneously fell off, and the center console was not, uh, strictly speaking, attached to the rest of the car. <laughs> <laughs> and John also had to keep the steering wheel at a quarter turn to the left to keep the car going straight. But, you know, it did keep going. I mean, it got us to the open air museum and then the rest of the way around the lake, which was honestly, you know, getting all the way around it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that is definitely sufficiently uh, out there to qualify for I did it for the architectural history. I mean, I'm glad we went though. No, definitely. Frutiar in particular was a really quaint little town. There's this huge new performing arts center right on the lake that was built in part by Nestle money a few years ago. And it seems to have grown into a really big attraction and the town is pushing hard to be the art center of the region. As opposed to Puerto Varas, which is, you know, again, firmly the sort of bougie, outdoorsy adventure town. Though, I mean, basically in sort of a nice way. As we mentioned in the intro, there are tons of pubs and microbrews. Sort of another Germanic influence is, a, is that this is really beer country, although the wine is still cheap and plentiful. And being right on the lake, surrounded by snow-capped volcanoes, it's it's a nice look. And, and things aren't too expensive or overrun with tourists here. So other than our day trip around the lake, we've mainly just been out for walks. There isn't a whole lot of industrial heritage in the area. This is the sort of sheep-raising, wool-producing area historically. I was mainly interested in the German influences here because in a lot of what I've seen and looked at, industrialization is so tied to colonization that I thought this would provide kind of an interesting contrast. And fortunately, when we were in Puerto Varas, there was this really nice heritage walking trail that went through the town and showcased some of the really well-preserved houses from the late 1800s and early 1900s. The style of architecture endemic to this area uses these characteristic shingles that have this particular shape to them, and they're always attached with two nails. Some of these shingled buildings are painted all over, but most are just left in their natural state. And then if there is any trim, it's just painted on the windows and doors as accents. It's really distinctive and not quite like anything I've ever seen before. Yeah, it's, it's very picturesque, and, and you can see it basically all over Puerto Varas. But, you know, still after four days of just kind of chilling out, we were kind of ready to move on and excited for the next phase of our trip, a road trip down the Carretera Astral. The Carretera Austral, which translates as Southern Highway, basically links Puerto Varas with the far southern part of the country, winding over a thousand kilometers through Patagonia and ending in a town called Villa O'Higgins. <laughs> its construction was motivated by Pinochet, who wanted to foster a sense of connectedness, kind of creating a unified Chile through this rhetorical gesture of building this trans-Chile highway. And unsurprisingly, though, it's actually quite difficult to build a solid road in this part of the country, as it's so steep and windy and full of fjords and inlets and all manner of rain and difficult things. So for many years, much of the Carretera wasn't much more than a muddy path through the forest in the middle of nowhere on the edge of the world. But that's beginning to change, though, as, as Chile is really trying to push tourism in Patagonia. So our plan was to drive down to Chaitén, which is actually not that far. It's only about, what, 100 miles from yeah. Puerto Varas. But that would take us a couple of days due to the schedules for the ferries that are your only means of getting down the carretera. 
Yeah, unfortunately those fairies proved to be our undoing. It's actually, you know, kind of a complicated story, as it often is when you're trying to travel in rural but also very bureaucratic country. Um, but the sort of long story short of it is that a combination of a strike amongst the fishermen and ferry captains, and, and maybe just nationwide, it's really tough to tell somehow, um, but that strike combined with a, a, shall we say, difficult to navigate ferry website and my poor Spanish spoken language skills meant that we just could not realistically get down to Chai Ten, at least until the last day of our hotel reservation. It's definitely a bummer to miss out on that northern Patagonia region, but I think this experience has shown us that maybe it's best to have a bit more time and flexibility to dedicate to Patagonia when we go again in the future. I, it might not be the best thing for a few-day road trip. Yeah, it's, it's still a bummer, though. I mean, we're thousands of miles from home, and you know, only a 30-minute ferry ride away from Patagonia, and yet we just can't get there. It's just not running. Um, but, you know, it actually it was kind of a, a, like a bittersweet time, though. I mean, the weather on our drive down to the ferry was gorgeous, and the scenery was, you know, already exceptional. You know, lots of winding oceanside roads on green hills and this brilliant sunlight. And, you know, there we are sitting in our car, in this long line of cars waiting for the ferry that will never come, or at least not until the next day. And, you know, just sort of looking down in this beautiful little bay, I'm trying to call the ferry company, and Sarah's trying to figure out the cancellation policies for our various places that we have down the road. It's pretty stressful, but again, you know, it's this gorgeous view, and there are these incredibly sweet stray dogs who are wandering between the cars, clearly loving all the new people to check out. And our windows are down, and there's this amazing ocean breeze coming through, and it's actually kind of a really sweet little memory, even if it was stressful at the time. Yeah, and we got to go on a nice hike earlier in the day, and you know, it's just all kind of part of the adventure. Yeah, it's actually kind of remarkable that this is the first big time on this trip that we've had to change our plans at the last minute. Basically, everything else has gone pretty yeah. smoothly, which is particularly impressive given how out of the way some of our <laughs> travels have taken us. No, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, <laughs> there were so many times earlier that things could have gone wrong. I mean, I'm thinking just back to our, our little rental car in South Africa on that awful dirt road leading up to Hogsback and the frigid twilight. I mean, there's like an 80% chance that our car <laughs> should have broken down somewhere on that drive. Or if we'd been in Japan one week earlier, we would have been caught in the earthquake in Hokkaido. Or if we'd been one week later, we would have been on Yakushima during the typhoon. Yeah. So if the worst change of plans on this trip involves ending the day sipping sparkling rosé in the Puerto Vares Radisson Hotel Bar, then I think we're actually doing pretty good. <laughs> you, you make a convincing argument, Sarah, but particularly for the merits of sparkling rosé. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, after aboarding our ferry plans, we booked a last-minute room back in Puerto Vares and headed back. Um, and it was only about, what, an hour and a half to make that drive. Yeah, I mean, it ended up just being kind of a nice day, it, again, except for all of the stressful replanning. But <laughs> we're regrouping here for the night, and, and then we'll spend a couple more days in the region around Puerto Varas, and then get to our next destination, the island of Chiloé, just a couple days earlier than planned. So on that note, let's wrap up for this week with our typical overrated, underrated feature segment. So, John, what's your underrated for this week? Uh... Coffee, actually. So I knew from reading Isabel Allende that coffee was sort of a late addition to the cultural landscape of Chile, I guess, sort of, well, the one European thing that they that they didn't catch on to. But, and wow, particularly in these smaller towns, like, it is quite striking. 
in Puerto Varas, I got tired of the instant coffee in our Airbnb and went out to get just some, some actual coffee one morning. You know, it's like 7.45 in the morning on a Monday. And there just was not a place that sold coffee at that time. I mean, there were plenty of little shops open that were selling bread and pastries to people heading into work, but just none of them sold coffee. It was so weird. Um, but yeah, anyway, how about you, Sarah? <laughs> so my underrated for this week has got to be quiet. <laughs> We've had quite a few Airbnb and hotel experiences in the last couple weeks, well, really since we got to Chile, yeah. um, that have had some kind of persistent ambient noise that has made it uh, to a greater or lesser degree difficult to sleep. And I've just found myself thinking back to this article I read while we were in Japan from a uh, environmental scientist about the history of sound. Mm. And basically this guy's argument is that it used to be the case back in the 19th century that quiet was associated with backwardsness, with being rural, with not mm. being busy and productive. Mm -hmm. And so mechanical noise had a really sort of positive connotation to it. But that's really reversed, I think, yeah. in the 21st century. Now the ability to get away from that kind of noise, I think, is really a sort of class and privilege thing. Absolutely. Um, and the sounds that we've had to deal with have just really made me appreciate and value the places that we've been able to live and spend our time that do have some modicum of quiet to them. Definitely. So, John, what's your overrated for this week? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, well, overrated for this week, I'm, I'm just going to go with the easy route and say fairies. <laughs> you know, just looking back on it, like, I've never been real happy to be on a ferry. <laughs> you know, I've had some bad bridge experiences, but I've had some good bridge experiences. Sometimes you're like, wow, what a cool bridge I'm on. But I've just never been like, huh, this ferry's really doing it for me. So, you know, I'm just going to just going to say that fairies on a whole, you know, I could I could just do without. <laughs> so, <laughs> how about you, Sarah? Um, I'm going to keep it going with I would say the overrepresentation of food and drink in this segment mm. of the show oh, and yeah, say right. that for me overrated is sweetened yogurt. Mm -hmm. I just don't get the attraction. Yeah. You're going to put something sweet on it anyway, whether it's honey or granola or fruit. Like, shouldn't that be sweet enough? Why does the yogurt itself have to be sweetened? But it's it's just been so hard to find unsweetened yogurt here. Yeah, and you think that the label says sin azucar, and you think you're good, but nope. con sucralose. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely... And the other th weird thing here is that the yogurts only come in, like, the tiny single-serving plastic things or bags. Yep. It's like, why can't you just have a pint of yogurt in a plastic tub? Why does it have to be in a bag? But then all the Airbnbs we've stayed at have had pitchers, I guess, ostensibly, so you <laughs> yeah. can put your juice or your yogurt your in your old, pitcher. Your old yogurt pitcher. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, folks, I think we're going to call it a day. So catch you next week, where we'll be reporting from the windswept island of Chiloé. As always, our theme music is by Mark Barrett. Happy trails, amigos. <laughs>